is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. And on ABC Radio Tasmania, welcome to you. I'm Fiona Broom bringing you the Country Hour for Victoria and Tasmania on this Tuesday, the 2nd of January. And Happy New Year to you all. I hope you rung in the New Year in style. And speaking of New Year, today on the show we'll find out what farming and New Year's resolutions have in common, and they're more historically connected than you might think. And if you've got a New Year's resolution or maybe just some plans for 2024 that you'd like to share, let me know on the text line 0467 842 722. And we closed out 2023 with some pretty wild weather across parts of the country. But was that enough to get you near your average rainfall? Send through your year-end rain totals. That text number again, 0467 842 I'm looking forward to hearing what you got. I'm sure there'll be some pretty big differences between Vic and Tassie. And New Year, new format for Victoria at least. We'll be bringing you your rural news at the new time of 12.30 this year, just before we jump into the weather. So rural news coming up today around 12.30. So let's get stuck into the show. Well, New Year's celebrations aren't a new thing. Most ancient cultures had some kind of tradition or New Year festival. The Babylonians were the first recorded people to set what we would now call New Year's resolutions. That was around 4,000 years ago. But the Babylonian year began in mid-March when the crops were going in the ground. And I've actually seen one report that said the Babylonian practice of New Year's resolutions related to pledging to return borrowed farm equipment, which is something I'm sure many of you can relate to. And for many years, the Roman calendar also began with the crops. To shed some light on the farming roots of New Year's resolutions, I spoke with Dr Tamara Lewitt from the University of Melbourne's School of Historical and Philosophical Studies. Dr Lewitt, welcome to the Country Hour. Thank you, Fiona. Thanks for inviting me. Take us back to the days of the ancient Romans. What did New Year's resolutions look like back then? Well, the uh, Romans made uh, what we call or could translate as vows uh, on New Year. Um, But that meaning was a little bit different from what we think of as resolutions because um, at the time, the um, view of the future wasn't the same kind of science-based view that we might have where we think, well, if I do something now, it will have this result in the future. You know, if I eat healthy food, then my heart will be healthier or something like that. Uh, They saw their world as much more determined by... Um, deities by gods and goddesses or spirits or even uh, magic spells. Um, So the vow that Romans made on New Year was a vow to the gods uh, to um, make offerings and do the things that the gods wanted them to do in the coming year so that the gods would be kind to them and so they might also use uh, magic spells uh, to bring good things about something like a magic Roman magic spell is abracadabra, for example, which um, obviously is something we still uh, use in, in, a, in a more um, uh, not quite so serious way uh, today. Uh, and farm people would use um, farm magic to try to bring about a good outcome on their farm. Uh, so if you wanted to protect against bad weather, for example, you might bury a toad in a pot 
in a field uh, to protect against disease or bad weather. I don't know that they were cane toads, but I'm wondering if a cane toad would be a good thing to bury in a pot in your field to, um, to keep away bad weather. I'm sure a lot of people would be quite keen to bury a cane toad. <laughs> Or you could hang up a wolf's tail to protect your sheep. Um, This was something I I, uh, put in a um, historical novel that I was researching uh, for uh, author Anna Siddor, A Message Through Time, and uh, we have a a scene with a shepherd who has a wolf's tail hung up to to protect the sheep because this was very much part of people's lives to to have these kinds of um, religious and and magical um, protection in their lives. And so what were some of the, the rituals around the celebration that happened uh, in the March New Year? We, many communities in the Mediterranean and the West Asian region um, do still celebrate New Year at that spring equinox period. And those celebrations continued? Yes. Well, um, it's the start of spring. So um, it, uh, a lot of uh, rituals involving ideas of birth, rebirth, um, you know, seeds sprouting, these kinds of ideas. Um, and the Romans had an interesting twist on the March celebration. It was uh, very much a celebration for women and particularly mothers. It was a bit like a kind of Roman Mother's Day. Uh, so it was um, something that you celebrated in the home, not only in public. Husbands gave their wives presents, which was actually usually against Roman law. Husbands and wives were, by law, not allowed to give each other gifts. On this particular day, husbands were allowed to give a gift to their wives and they would pray for their welfare and the welfare of their marriages. Uh, And women uh, went to the temple of the goddess Juno, the goddess of childbirth, and if you were pregnant, you had your hair hanging loose, um, which again was pretty unusual for the Romans because women usually, married women, wore their hair very, very much tied up. Um, But the most um, quirky kind of thing which the Romans did uh, on this um, festival in March was uh, they had a role reversal between slaves and slave owners. Women served a meal to their household slaves instead of the slaves serving the slave owners. Um, which was something that a couple of Roman festivals did and um, seems really unusual that that suddenly the slaves were allowed to boss the the owners around. You are listening to The Country Hour. We've got Dr Tamara Lewitt with us today telling us about the history of New Year's resolution and the farming roots of resolutions from the Roman days. So if we flash forward a couple of thousand years, we'll get to to modern New Year celebrations. Wine is very central. A glass of, of fizzy wine is still seen as part of the ritual of toasting within a lot of our cultures. Uh, Dr. Lewitt, how was wine connected to Roman celebrations? And, and do you think people would have resolved to drink less wine um, in the new year in the, in the Roman days? Or is that a, a modern type of resolution? Oh, that's a very modern type of resolution, Fiona, because wine was absolutely essential um, to the diet in the ancient world. Everybody drank wine, men, women and children and even babies were weaned on wine uh, because wine was safer to drink than water. Um, water could have um, contamination or parasites, but if you put some wine in the water, 
then uh, it would kill some of the uh, pathogens. And Romans always drank wine watered down, so they would drink about three parts water to one part wine. So uh, in a way, it was uh, you know it was much milder than what we would be drinking, except if it was used for religious rituals, because wine was not only essential for drinking, um, but it was the absolutely fundamental um, religious ritual. So the main offering that you would make to a deity um, in a festival, so whether it was New Year or um, any other kind of festival, of course the wine harvest particularly, you would make offerings to the wine god and you would always pour out some wine as part of your offerings. And that was pure wine. The gods had it pure. They didn't have it watered down. They did have some fizzy wine. Uh, what's um, uh, pet nat, as, it's, as we call it today. So some of the sort of naturally, slightly uh, fizzy wine, but not, uh, of course, with the modern method of, of making it. Ah. Um, and most Roman wine was white wine. So we don't have any record of them using maceration of the grapes to give that um, deep red colour to wine. That's really interesting because if I think about depictions of Roman or, or um, ancient Greece... I tend to think of red wine. Yes, they they uh, they we we often do have that kind of image in our mind, don't we? Um, they do seem to have some wine which was dark coloured or reddish, but maybe it was something to do with adding berries. They loved adding things to their wine. They added all sorts of things, nice things like herbs and honey, or horrible things like marble dust or. Um, salt water which they added to their wines Um, so it might have been to do with some sort of additive or it might have been oxidization or it might even have been the color of the grapes because um, wild grapes are a darker color so they might have been a bit closer to the wild species and just you know sort of stained the juice a little bit more and maybe they did make some red wine but we just don't know about it because the evidence isn't there there's a lot we don't know about the ancient world there is a some sort of trend within some uh, food production industries to go back to, to ancient grains or ancient styles yes. of food production. I wonder if anyone will be keen to take up some of the uh, the Roman styles of winemaking. Yes, well, people are. There's um, there's a winery um, uh, uh, on the peninsula which is um, fermenting wine in uh, clay pots, which is how the Romans uh, the Romans did it. Uh, and yes, there's certainly a lot of trend towards the natural winemaking. Uh, the Roman process was very uncontrolled. They didn't um, use sulphur to sterilise the wine, and um, they couldn't. They didn't have yeast to add, so it was very often went wrong. Uh, and uh, quite often, the wine would be either really sour, almost vinegar, which was sold as cheap wine, or it would go mouldy, or uh, the uh, fermenting would get stuck. Um, so it was a bit, very, very much the luck of the draw. You basically just chucked your grapes on the ground and stomped on them for a while and then uh, put the juice into clay pots and hoped for the best and made plenty of sacrifices to the wine god. Uh, there's quite a few um, altars to, to the wine god or paintings of the wine god in, um, in winemaking buildings uh, from the Roman world. So they, they obviously uh, tried everything that they could to get as much protection as they could for the winemaking process. So that would have been, I guess, some of those resolutions or vows as we, we now know that they, they were. Dr. Lewitt, do you, do you make resolutions yourself? Have you made any vows or any pledges for 2024? 
Well, I haven't thought too much about 2024 yet, but one thing I'd love to do this year is um, I actually have um, an exhibition on Roman wine at the um, Old Quad Gallery at the University of Melbourne this coming year, uh, which is till August, and I'd love to get more people um, coming to see the exhibition uh, during the year, so maybe that's my resolution. If you Google uh, Ancient Lives, you'll find that exhibition, so maybe that could be my resolution. Dr. Tamara Lewitt, thank you so much for your time and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Fiona. Thanks for speaking to me. That's Roman wine and oil historian Dr. Tamara Lewitt there filling us in on the ancient connections between farming and New Year's resolutions. Loads of uh, 2023 rainfall texts coming in. Rob in Chilton says he got 67 millimetres for December, which brings his annual total to 713.5. Thanks for your text there, Rob. Uh, Another message says rainfall on the 24th, the 25th in Wedderburn, officially 155 millimetres. They say several properties nearby recorded 175 plus mills, homes flooded, kilometres of fencing ripped out, trees across roads and fences and stock losses. Uh, sorry to hear that there uh, around Wedderburn. Uh, another message here from Kelvin. Good afternoon at the Country Hour. Kelvin in Murrayvale. Rain, well, I've had enough now. <laughs> uh, our annual, half our annual rain in a month, 155 mils, 105 over Christmas. Um, and apologies to folks in Ballarat. Uh, It appears that there are some transmission issues um, around that region, but that is being worked on at the moment. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. And of course in Tasmania as well. I'm Fiona Broom. This is the Country Hour. Still ahead, your rural news and weather. And we'll get all the news from the Wodonga sale yards where the year's biggest sale has kicked off today. Well, many of you will have celebrated with a few wines on New Year's Eve, but will grape growers and winemakers be celebrating this year's vintages? Earlier this morning, I caught up with Catherine Brown from the Brown Family Wine Group, uh, which is best known for producing Brown Brothers wines, to find out what we can expect from the year ahead for wine. Brown Brothers, or the greater company Brown Family Wine Group, have vineyards um, across Victoria, so like Heathcote, King Valley, Murray Valley, and then also down in Tasmania. So from a Victorian perspective, we're looking really optimistic for the 2024 harvest. Uh, Coming off last year, which was uh, quite wet, we had quite a lot of disease pressure. Um, We've really seen a a fantastic spring. Um, So um, slightly early bud burst, uh, which will lead to probably harvest kicking off uh, around mid-February, which is uh, sort of on average um, spot on in timing. Um, so hopefully the weather keeps being kind to us and um, we see that grapefruit coming through. And so we'll begin with white, white grape harvest, is that right? Yeah, so normally the first fruit we bring in is usually Chardonnay from the Murray Valley. Um, we've got vineyards up near Swan Hill at Mystic Park. Um, and then uh, as we sort of move into March, uh, we'll start seeing the red fruit coming through. And so you mentioned that there was a wet year last year. Have there been any conditions this year affecting production? And what's the, um, the expected quality and, and volume this year? 
So everything looks really positive for this year. Um, that warm spring was just absolutely fantastic. It was just what the vines needed. Um, great vines do sort of have a bit of a, a hangover if they've had a tough year the year before. Uh, so yields are a little bit down just because the vines are recovering from you know, that the wet year that we had last year. Um, so yield, yields are looking good though. Um, because they are a little bit down, it actually means higher quality. Uh, the vine can really focus on the grapes it's got and um, really put its effort into sort of like the maturing of that fruit. So, um, yeah, we've really only got sort of a positive um, positive way to look at 2024, which is pretty good um, when you consider that we're farmers. Um, it's, it's nice to start with a, a positive outlook and hopefully it continues that direction. And so we've just come through the festive season. What were consumers buying for uh, the Christmas and, and New Year period? We're seeing an amazing um, trend happening in sparkling white, um, especially Prosecco. There's huge growth in um, that sparkling white Prosecco category. And we saw that flowing all the way through the festive season uh, last year, um, like so the year before, 2022, and also this 2023, 2024 um, side of things. Um, and we see that's really occasion-based. Um, people are more sort of, you know, the casual entertaining, the daytime entertaining, the barbecues. Um, and that sort of sparkling white is, is really coming out. Um, something we're also seeing a lot of um, a huge trend in is uh, zero wine, so zero alcohol wine. Um, mm, yeah. we, we currently have a Moscato and a Prosecco in zero alcohol. And, um, yeah, the, the sales increase has just been amazing in that over this festive period. So really seeing people like looking for that sort of healthier option as well. Yeah, we're hearing a lot about the zero and low alcohol markets. Uh, In terms of 2024 uh, consumer trends, um, what can we expect this year in terms of um, upcoming varieties or or, or growing popularity? Yeah, we're really seeing um, a bit of a a groundswell in in chilled reds. Um, We have an amazing grape variety that we developed with the CSIRO um, decades ago called Tarango. Um, Tarango was quite popular in the 80s and grows up um, sort of in the warmer regions around um, Swan Hill, Murray Valley sort of area. And um, this is a, a great variety that makes it sort of um, essentially a rosé, but uh, but sort of um, more bold in style, sort of, sort of sitting between that dry red and a rosé. Um, but we chill it and we're really seeing a trend coming through of sort of like that that easy drinking red wine for sort of like that barbecue occasion. So it'll be interesting to, to keep an eye out for, um, you know, varieties like Tarango, as I mentioned, um, Gamay also um, fits into that chilled red, easy drinking red. Um, and there's some other um, wineries out there working with some Mediterranean, vari- Mediterranean varieties that really fit into that category as well. What does a Gamay taste like? Uh, the Gamay, it sort of sits on a, a Pinot Noir spectrum. It's sort of got that nice sort of um, cherry um, juicy red fruits and because it doesn't have very high tannins um, you can actually chill it down and, and makes a really lovely drink over these summer months. And so what would you be hoping for from 2024 for uh, for your wine business but also for the industry? What are some New Year's resolutions that you might have for this year? Looking quite broadly in terms of New Year's resolutions for the wine industry, um, I think we've all got our fingers and toes crossed uh, that the Chinese um, tariffs will be lifted. Um, we're looking in our plan, we're looking around sort of March, April. Uh, we're sort of like hopefully to be able to jump over and get in, into that market um, physically in May. There's um, some really exciting sort of trade shows and that sort of thing happening throughout Asia in May. Um, and I really feel that that's going to, um, you know, reinvigorate the Australian wine industry that has been so hurt from those 
um, tariffs that have been put on over the past few years. Um, and also um, just getting consumers excited uh, about uh, the wine industry again. We are seeing sort of like this trend going towards, um, you know, healthier lifestyles and, and a bit of negative um, negative commentary around alcohol. Um, but really it's all about this sort of like engagement of people into the wine occasion, whether it is sort of like, you know, the traditional wine or the zero wine that we're working with. So, um, yeah, really optimistic for 2024. That was Catherine Brown from the Brown Family Wine Group there. And I, I quite like a chilled red. I'm also quite partial to a sparkling red. Uh, if you haven't tried one, you should um, get your hands on one. They are quite delicious. Some more rainfall texts. Uh, hello, rainfall total for 2023, 242.5 millimetres, almost average, says Phil from the Mallee Conservation north side of Hatter National Park. Apologies if I, uh, I'm not pronouncing any tam- town names correctly here. Uh, another text says, Hi Country Hour Crew 2023 rainfall at Eurobin was 1,266 millimetres. This is 127 mil or roughly five inches above average. Thanks so much for your message there, Jeff. Well, let's head now to northeast Victoria, where the biggest wiener sale of the year has kicked off in Wodonga. It's a humid and sweaty day at the sale yards where thousands of calves are on offer today, with thousands more available across the week. And livestock agent Katie Lewis from Corker and Parker told me the quality is excellent this year. We've got what we sort of describe as the, the northeast wiener sales, um, which it basically includes the Hume region, Alpine, out to the Coriong and the Southern, Southern Riverina. Um, and we've got about, I think there's going to be about 28,000 calves on offer this week. Uh, we kick off today with what we call our Angus sale. So it's, it's predominantly the autumn drop calves and we also have a, a few of the later spring drop calves available. But today we start off at MVLX um, and we've got a bit over 5,200 calves here. We're anticipating this sale to be wrapped up by about 2pm and then we head down to Wangaratta where we've got another, I think there's just shy of 6,000 calves down there. Um, and they're mostly from sort of our, our, you know, more southern Victorian area around Mansfield and, and Wangaratta region. Um, and then uh, the other agents, they then have their, which uh, when I say the other agents, elders and nutrients, then they have their Angus sale tomorrow. So they have, I think they've got another three or 4,000 here at MBLX. Then we go on to what we call our coloured sale or our all breeds. So... Again, we have a, a double sale on the Thursday, which we start at MVLX with, I think we're going to have about three and a half, four thousand, 4,000. And then we head down to Wangaratta in the afternoon with another, I think, 3,000. Um, and then on the Friday, Elders and Nutrient, they have their coloured sale. And I think they've got about another 4,000 at that. And then on the Saturday, Ray White finish up the week and they've got about 600 there at their sale on the Saturday morning. So big, big jam-packed week. <laughs> so... Vendors, buyers, agents, truckies, everyone will be a bit worn out by the end of the week, but it's a very exciting time. And, you know, um, especially it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary to see this many absolute top quality wieners, you know, spread over the two selling complexes, but this many to, to roll through the yards in one week. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, what is the quality looking like? It's a real credit. I just mentioned to Justin Keane last night, we were getting a few videos of the livestock and I said to him when we were at Wangaratta, I said, I don't think I've ever walked into a quieter set of yards. Um, everybody's, you know, people have really worked on getting their cattle weaned. 
Um, so, you know, there's very, very little bellowing. There's probably only about 20% of the cattle that haven't been weaned this year. A lot of people are putting a lot more effort into that and, and educating the cattle. And another thing I mentioned to him, I've been with CP 10 years in February and there's a lot of clients that I've just noticed every year their cattle have moved up a pen. Every year the cattle, they've improved the genetics, they've improved the quality, they've got more weight into them. You know, and clients that might have had a pen of steers in the 15th or 20th pen and now in the third or fourth, which is, a, it's an absolute credit to the vendors, that is. And so you said there's about 28,000 calves on offer across the week. How does that compare with last year and with previous sales? Uh, it's, it's up on last year, I believe. It's, it's enormous. You know, a lot of people are seeing the benefits of getting into an autumn drop an autumn calving pattern and targeting their cattle for this sale because, you know, just on today, like the competition that we've had from the north, we've got buyers here today from Bathurst, Tamworth, Gunnedah. They're all coming down and they're all they're all on the rail um, and they're all wanting the cattle. And, you know, it's just I think a lot of people are seeing the benefits of, of preparing their cattle for this sale. It is, you know, it has its pros and cons. I mean, we were here on New Year's Day last night and we, we were at the yards until 11.30 and obviously the vendors were having to get their cattle in and the truckies were having to bring them here. So it, it is an effort, but it's definitely paid off. Everyone's seeing the benefits of it. Yeah, sounds like a, a massive week and a really important sale for the region. What's, uh, what's going on today? The sales have already kicked off. What kind of results are you seeing? So we've kicked off today at 9am. Um, it's, it's already, there's a lot of energy. There's, it's a great atmosphere in here. Um, it's hard to find a spot at the rail um, and it's not tyre kickers. It's people wanting the cattle, people trying to buy the cattle. Um, I think sort of end of last year, we were sort of scraping around around the $3 mark for, for those young 10, 11-month-old calves. Today, we've kicked off in the early threes. Um, there's a lot of cattle here today making $3.30, $3.40. Um, and I've seen some younger 289 kilo calves that made $3.76. So it's pretty exciting and, and people want the cattle and it's, it's just, it's got a huge energy going. So, and I mean, that, that's what it's all about. Are those sorts of numbers going to be uh, pleasing to sellers or are they sort of benefiting the buyers? I think both. I mean, there's been really widespread rain across New South Wales and if, if you don't buy them this year, you haven't got them to sell next year and everybody's got to make an income. So the buyers are all there wanting to get them. Um, and certainly off last year, you know, it was it was a tough enough year, 2023, and a lot of the vendors sort of, I think, came here just thinking, you know, let's just see how we go. Nobody came here, you know, hoping and wishing to see too much. So everything's sort of been a, a, a surprise for them and um, you know, everybody, so everyone that I've seen so far has had a smile on their face and been really happy with the results. So huge, huge pat on the back to everybody on what, you know, it's only day one, but what's an enormous effort. Just just the, the quality of the cattle, the temperament of the cattle, how quiet they are, how well they've been weaned. Um, the truck drivers that were, were working on New Year's Day, the vendors that were working on New Year's Day, um, all of us that were working, you know, it's just an enormous effort um, and everybody's got a smile on their face, whether it's, you know, I think everyone will be looking for a beer by five or six o'clock tonight <laughs> because we have got 11,000 of the 28,000. I'll just mention that we have got 11,000 of those to get through today. So once we get through today, that takes a big that takes a big chunk of it, and hopefully we can sort of cruise through the rest of the week. And everyone's everyone's in a bit of a rhythm by then. But it's just an enormous effort. Um, and yeah, just I know it's only day one, but I just really like to congratulate everyone on how 
how well the cattle have been presented and, and brought in here and drafted up. It's just, it's a credit, absolute credit. That's Katie Lewis, a livestock agent with Corker and Parker uh, at the Wiener Sales in Wodonga. Uh, and as Katie said, those sales will continue across the week with almost 30,000 calves on offer. And as mentioned, there's no tyre kickers at the sale today. So that's probably good news if you are a vendor. Uh, some more rainfall texts. Uh, Heather says 696 millimetres or 27 inches at Dunkeld, which is the highest yearly total for a while. The average over the last few years being 22 inches. Thanks for your message there, Heather. Uh, rainfall at Coleraine, 84 millimetres for December, 547 for the year, a little below average, says David. You can send me your text 0467842722. We better get to rural news and then we'll have weather coming up after that. Good afternoon, Jane McNaughton. Good afternoon, Fiona. Did you know that hailstones have growth rings like trees? It turns out that environmental conditions, topographical effects and even sea breezes can play a role in the formation of large hailstones. So how do scientists know this? It's actually everyday Australians that are providing the hail so that they can do the research. Senior Research Fellow at the University of Queensland, Joshua Soderholm, says the public collecting and preserving hailstones provides data to scientists across the globe. I've done a lot of travel internationally to look at different, to work in different places which have giant hail and I can say for sure that Queensland gets a lot of giant hail. So we're way up there with... um, other places in the world, including the US, which also gets a lot of hail. Um, What makes us quite special in Queensland is we get a lot of hail on the coast. Not many places in the world are similar in that way. And also, for us, our population lives on the coast. So that means a lot of people actually get impacted by this very large hail. So it can be, of course, very dangerous and devastating, but for us to be able to collect it afterwards, it's very beneficial for the science. They tend to get smaller as you go further south. So New South Wales still gets a few big events. Uh, Victoria gets far fewer events. And the other parts of Australia, South Australia and Western Australia and Tasmania, they're just too dry or too cool. So we don't see as many big hailstorms there. They're quite rare. Australia has been infiltrated by six-legged foreign agents. But instead of spying for the enemy, their mission, should they choose to accept it, is to fight the war on weeds, with one in particular in their sights, Parthenium. Megan Hughes reports. In the 1980s, the Queensland government started recruiting a sleeper cell of insects and fungi from overseas to assassinate one of the world's hardest-to-kill pest plants, Parthenium weed. It's originally from North America, and it takes over when native plants are weakened. It's resistant to herbicides, toxic to animals and causes allergic reaction in humans. It causes crop losses, displays native vegetation, and mainly, in central Queensland, I would say, reduces pasture production. So it can't compete. The pasture cannot compete with the parthenium, so they reduce the carrying capacity of the cattle. That's senior principal scientist Dr Kunjitapatam Dilipan from Biosecurity Queensland. He's been involved in this program for decades. Pythidium weed took off in the 1950s, spreading from contaminated seed imported from the United States to Clermont in central Queensland. Average is about 4,000 seeds per plant, but there are some plants we have seen up to more than 100,000 seeds. Produce enormous number of seeds. Also, the seeds can live in the soil for a very long time. Even if we start controlling now, 
the amount of seed in the soil is so high it keeps coming back in the next 10 15 years. In an arena where horses can cost up to half a million dollars, one of the best costs just 250 bucks. In 2022, three-year-old filly Bad in Black fetched $550,000, breaking all Australasian sale records for a performance horse. But for New South Wales horseman Neil Finn, he loves to turn much cheaper rough diamonds into champions, and one of them is known as Woody B. Metallic. I bought him through my son. He basically came from um, Gimpy Horsestyle. We bought him for $250, and at that stage he wasn't registered. Uh, he had hair on him about four inches long when we got him, and he's only about four months old. I don't know what it is, but I saw something in him. I liked it. I saw something in him, and... Um, we basically uh, kept feeding him and worming him because he was full of worms when we got him. Basically, we grew him up. He's by an American horse called um, Metallic Echo. He's out of a highbrow cat-bred mare. So he, he, he had good breeding, but how he finished up in um, the sale up there, I don't quite know. What attracted <coughs> you to this little horse? I don't know. I think it's probably spending a lifetime with horses. You see something, you, you know, a, a good guy can do it with dogs. You can see something in a dog, you know. I just saw something in that horse that I, I liked his confirmation, even though he, he was only four months old and had hair four inches long on him, but I could see something in him. And finally, Fiona, did you know that about 25 to 30% of the population have something known as super taste buds? It means when they sat down to Christmas lunch last week, they were picking up a lot more flavours than the rest of us. But how do you know if you are a super taster? Heather Syme is a sensory scientist and flavour specialist. What is a super taster? Well, super tasters were a concept that was developed back in about the 80s by a lady, an American scientist called Linda Bartoshuk. And she identified in some, I guess they were more clinical trial rather than, than food tasting types of, of uh, patients. She identified that certain people had a really strong uh, reaction to this compound called PROP, which is a, a bitter tastant. Um, it's basically, a, I guess, a chemical stimulant. She would soak it on these little bits of filter paper and pop it on your tongue. And she found that about 25 to 30% of the population had a really strong, bitter sensation that you know, made them gag. Um, then there was another group of the population around another 50% that thought, yeah, that's that's a bit bitter, but it's not really very unpleasant. And then there was about another you know, 20, 25% of the population who really tasted nothing at all. And she realised that some people have a much stronger response to taste stimulants than others. And and that's today's Rural News. Thanks so much for that, Jane. Jane McNaughton bringing you today's Rural News. Let's cross now to the Weather Bureau. We've got Lincoln Trainer with us. Good afternoon, Lincoln. Good afternoon, Fiona. How are you going? Very well, thank you. We've been getting some uh, 2023 rainfall totals from folks today. We've seen a, a bit of a range of um, rainfall numbers. When does the Bureau release its data on those annual totals? It takes a couple of days to sort of collect yeah, those numbers, I think. I believe that will come during mid-January. They'll give you the full climate summary, which always is always interesting uh, every year. Yeah, so that should come soon. Looking forward to that. Let's jump into uh, weather for Victoria and Tasmania. What's been happening over the past couple of days? What can we expect today and tomorrow? Let's start with Victoria. Yes, okay. Well, Victoria, if I look at the satellite picture, there's quite a bit of cloud in the southwest at the moment. We do have a thunderstorm warning for those uh, in the western districts. 
it's a severe thunderstorm warning for damaging winds, large hailstones and heavy rainfall. And that's quite that's affecting um, towns such as Horsham, Stall, Hamilton, Ballarat and Maryborough. There's quite an extensive amount of storms in there at the moment. Looking at the radar, Eversley and the Wimmera has seen 28 millimetres already today, Stall 17, Mount William 16 millimetres. Uh, Hamilton has even received 9 millimetres recently. So we're starting to see some heavy falls come out of those storms uh, and we're expecting those to continue down to the south. So please keep an eye out for those warnings. Uh, and then for the rest of the day in Victoria, it's quite uh, unstable and unsettled. We're going to see some storms across the north, um, potentially severe thunderstorms in the afternoon. Uh, and then that's associated with a trough over western Victoria that's going to slowly move to the east tomorrow and eventually clear the state uh, on Thursday. That trough will also impact Tasmania as well uh, more to tomorrow. But the news is all about... Um, uh, Victoria, I'd say for today, is quite unsettled. It will also see some unsettled weather uh, tomorrow as those storms uh, move into the eastern half of the state. Uh, we could see some storms today in northern metropolitan areas around Melbourne and definitely uh, potentially early morning storms uh, near Melbourne and into the uh, eastern suburbs in the afternoon. So we're definitely on a, uh, a storm watch um, for Melbourne metropolitan area for later today and into tomorrow. I'm in the sales studio today and I tell you what, it is quite steamy here. It's feeling very hot and humid. Um, what can we expect for Tasmania? What's happening in the north and the south? Yeah, well, um, it's generally settled weather during the week, but tomorrow they see this trough that's impacting Victoria. Uh, they're expecting around 5 to 10 millimetres, uh, but could get 20 to 30 millimetres with storms. Storms most likely about in the north, central parts and the northeast. Uh, and then finally, uh, cooler Thursday with southerly winds, but returning to warm and settled conditions from Friday to Sunday. Uh, the highest falls I've seen in the last 24 hours was uh, 14 millimetres at Friendly Beaches and followed by 11 millimetres at Grey. And there was also plenty of light falls for the rest uh, of the east. But storms tomorrow are possible about most parts of the state except for the west coast, far south and in will include uh, a chance uh, about Hobart. So if we look at some of the temperatures today, you're right, it's humid. We've got this moisture over us um, at the moment for uh, Victoria for the next two days. It will clear by Thursday and it's feeling humid all, even down in Tasmania. So if we look at Launceston today, I mean, they're 28 partly cloudy, quite settled, but then we start to see a little bit of wet weather tomorrow, 29 and showers. Then a little bit cooler, but 26, quite mild really, 26, 25 on Friday for Launceston. Uh, but yeah, quite settled except for tomorrow. And then if we look at Hobart, 22 today and cloudy, um, 24 and humid tomorrow, a shower or two as we said, and then it's um, settled conditions, a bit of cloud about for Hobart, 20 on Thursday as it's a little bit cooler in a southerly, and then warming up a little bit, uh, Friday 22, Saturday 24 in Hobart, so nice sunny conditions into the weekend for Hobart. The same for Melbourne, uh, today although it's 26 is quite humid, there's going to be another humid day tomorrow, 27, and that's where we're going to potentially see some heavy falls in the morning. Uh, in, so if you're going out in tomorrow morning, we could see some heavy rainfall around metropolitan areas for Melbourne. It'll be 27 and quite humid, like you're feeling at sale. Uh, Thursday, 
starts to ease. Cooler, 22 in a southerly. Uh, and then Friday to the weekend, both Victoria and Tasmania are seeing a nice sunny summer weekend. Oh, that's lovely. Something to look forward to. Um, Anything that we need to know about Tasmania's coastal waters? There is a warning at the moment for their coastal waters. Let me just have a look at that. Um, It's nothing... Uh, you caught me on the fly. You've done well with that one. Uh, let me have a look. Did you have a look at the warnings? <laughs> I actually didn't, I confess. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't look at the one. Okay, I'll give it to you. Here it is. There is a marine wind warning um, for far northwest coast and east of Flinders Island. So that's the current warning out there. If we go back to Victoria, uh, where we're seeing a lot of the activity today, I'd recommend everyone monitor the Bureau website and warnings um, because we're going to see, um, I would suspect, several uh, severe thunderstorm warnings happening during the day. We've got one out at the moment for the Western Districts, uh, as I shared earlier. We've all still got, still got a minor flood warning for the Loddon River, minor flood warning for the Avoca River. We're also going to be monitoring river rises over these two days. We're going to see uh, moderate to heavy falls potentially in some central parts of Victoria today and that could uh, give small river rises today and then it moves into Gippsland tomorrow. We could see uh, some small river rises there. So we're going to be monitoring those closely but um, hopefully it'll just be some isolated falls associated with the storms and nothing too significant. There is one marine wind warning for um, Victoria and that's a strong wind warning for East Gippsland Coast uh, today and tomorrow, but nothing significant really along the coastal waters. All right, Lincoln Trainer, we better leave it there. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fiona. Appreciate it. Take care. Cheers. Lincoln Trainer at the Bureau of Meteorology there. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. It is 12.46 on the Country Hour. Well, as of yesterday, Victoria's native timber harvesters have shut down their equipment as the industry came to an official end, marking the end of an era for timber communities. After Supreme Court orders limited the areas available for logging, the industry's end date was brought forward by the state government from 2030 to the 1st of January 2024, so that was yesterday. It's left many scrambling to find alternative work, with some contractors starting anew after decades in the industry. Natasha Shapova has this report. I worked very hard to get my business to where it is now and I wanted to build that for my family. Now we've got to take another pathway and I've got to start again. Warren Fenner is a contractor based in East Gippsland's Orbost, operating out of Club Terrace. He's worked in the timber industry his whole life, along with multiple generations of his family. In November 2022, Supreme Court orders limited the area available for logging and expanded protected areas after it found the state-owned logging agency Vic Forest failed to adequately protect the yellow-bellied glider and the endangered greater glider. The Victorian government then brought forward the ban on native timber harvesting from 2030. But since the final announcement of closing the industry down, we had a bit of a scale back dramatically. and We're back down to three full-time workers and two truck drivers. One went to Tasmania, one went to Singleton as heavy haulage driver, one went to Bendigo to work on civil construction 
and yeah, the rest have been haven't got any work. As court orders drastically reduced Mr Fenner's capabilities, he's had to pivot his business away from timber harvesting. We're still stranded with our large equipment to do native hardwood logging and we've started to pursue a pathway forwards in vegetation management. But Mr Fenner is concerned working in vegetation management could be short-lived. I'm worried about the same regulations and rules that stopped us from being in the hardwood timber industry could possibly stop the government being able to do any vegetation management. The Victorian government has established a forestry transition program to support businesses, workers and communities to transition out of native timber. But for a town like Orbost, which is largely made up of timber workers, locals are now concerned for its future, as many may have to move away for new job opportunities. Gary Squires is the Secretary of Orbost's Chamber of Commerce and says the timber industry constituted about a quarter of the town's full-time jobs. So that's very significant in a town. It's it's over 100 jobs impacted directly and then there's the flow-on effects. So that that has a big impact on our sporting clubs, on our schools, on our main street, on, on the traders in the main street. Mr Squires says the industry's closure would likely change the demographic of Orbost and the town would need to adjust to create new industries. A lot of people are going to have to either leave permanently or fly in, fly out type jobs. So there'll be a change in the demographics, a change in in the type of business, perhaps a little bit more reliance on tourism and hopefully we can develop some other small craft industries. But environmental groups insist the industry's closure is the right move for the future after decades of campaigning to end logging. Environmental Justice Australia's Dania Jacobs says the move is a step in the right direction, but more needs to be done to protect endangered species. The best way to halt the extinction crisis is to securely protect the habitat of endangered species in national parks. We're not there yet, but this will bring about the end of native forest logging, which is one of the biggest threats to our endangered species in Victoria. Miss Jacobs says she's concerned that native forest logging could continue under another name, rebranded as disaster or bushfire management and salvage operations. We're calling on the government to close these loopholes, ensure that disaster logging does not continue and take the place of native forest logging and to create national parks with traditional owner management at their core and assess our incredible native forest for World Heritage listing. That was Dania Jacobs ending that report there from Natasha Shapova. And still on timber, but moving from Victoria to Tasmania, where for many years enjoying Dove Lake in the Cradle Mountain Lake St. Clair National Park has mostly been a matter of getting to its shores and just looking at it or walking around it. But last year things changed when kayak tours returned to the lake, giving people the chance to get out and about on the water and paddle to some scenic spots on its edges. And what's more, there's something pretty special about the tour company's new fleet in terms of what the vessels are built from. Reporter Sarah Abbott ventured to Dove Lake where she waved off a visitor leaving on a tour before chatting with Anthony O'Hearn from Cradle Mountain Canyons. So this will keep you nice and dry in the water. How are you feeling, Nikki? Excited. (laughs) It just got... Stunning views, and we love being out on the water, so it should be an awesome time. I should say, you look like you know what you're doing. <laughs> Hopefully. 
hopefully we don't fall in, then we'll be okay for the rest of today. <laughs> Yeah, you got your rudder down. Nice job. So right now we're at a place called Dove Lake with a mountain called Cradle Mountain right behind us. So it's one of the most famous places, maybe the most famous place in the Tassie Wilderness World Heritage Area. You've got these big columns over the top of you. You've got thousand-year-old King Billy Pines drooping in on the side of the lake that you're paddling past. And that's part of the special thing as well. You're paddling past this, this tree that's been standing there for thousands of years and you're sitting in a boat that's made of the same sort of tree. And this timber boat you mentioned, this is something that you've just started taking out on the water recently, isn't it? That's right, yeah. So we've been running canyoning tours here for 12 years or so, and we've also got pack rafting tours we've been doing, and our latest thing is kayaking. So we're building kayaks out of King Billy Pine and running tours up on Dove Lake. So we started uh, basically a couple of weeks ago. So we've run, you know, maybe a, maybe 10 trips or something is all we've run so far. We're just getting into it. And you made the kayak yourself? I did, yeah. So it's what's called a strip-built kayak. So basically I've got I've got some kingbilly pine, which I've cut into strips six mil thick, and they all get glued together around a form. So the form's basically a thing that's the shape of a kayak, and I glue the strips around those and, and then fiberglass over the top of the, the kayak. Yeah, so it's hundreds of hours of work to build a build a kayak, but we... Uh, decided it would be our initial plan was just to buy some hunks of plastic and float around in those on the lake when we were going to start running tours but then we just had the idea that it would just be much more special if we build them ourselves they'll blend into the environment and there's a real history too king is a really special timber it's only found in Tasmania and the biggest stand left of King Billy is just near us here and there's not much of it left. You're not allowed to cut it down um, anymore. It's highly protected and there's a real history of King Billy in the area. A guy called Gustav Weindorfer who was a real pioneer in these parts. He ran what you could call Tassie's first adventure tourism product up here really. He used to take people out on a King Billy pine boat here more than 100 years ago. So there's that real history associated with King Billy pine and there's also King Billy pines in the canyon tours we run. Um, so for all those reasons, we thought it would be a really special thing to do to make these boats out of Kingbilly Pine. And I'm told you had no previous boat building experience, is that right? No boat building experience at all. I've done lots of building of like, you know, sheds and decks and tracks. We have to build a lot of tracks to access our canyons and it's a lot of that sort of stuff, but none of the fine, fine sort of work really. I didn't have any experience in that. So it's been a pretty steep learning curve there's a guru called nick Sharday. he's an american fella who wrote a book about it he's got a lot of resources so he's kind of been my um the prophet on the on my journey towards building this kayak and um yeah it's a very slow process there's a lot of fitting bits of kayak, bits of timber together they all have to fit together like a a little jigsaw puzzle and it's not necessarily hard per se if you're willing to put in the time you've just got a particular shape you have to make each individual bit of timber and if you sit there for long enough whittling little bits off here and a bit more there and and that sort of thing if you spend enough time you'll get it the right shape sooner or later so it's just really time consuming I imagine a boat is a pretty unforgiving thing to build in that if you get it wrong, you really know about it when you're out on the water. Were you uh, nervous at any point that that it wouldn't float? I don't know if I was nervous it wouldn't float because I knew if I'd, 
if I sealed it properly with fiberglass, it's always going to float. I was a bit worried. You never know how it's going to drive, though, if it's going to go in a straight line or you just get out and it wants to go in circles. So I was really pleasantly um, surprised with, with how, how it paddled the first time we got it up here. It's really nice to paddle. It's really light. Kingly Pine, that's one of the great things about it. It's a really light timber. Um, and it's, um, so the boat itself is really light and the design is, is really good. It's really stable, um, so it's quite wide. So I was worried that might mean it's a bit of a bit of a tub to paddle as well but it turns out it's really lovely to to paddle it goes really well in a straight line so now we're really happy with the design and you mentioned before that it would have been very possible in fact much easier for you to run into an outdoor shop and pick up a plastic kayak Mm -hmm. but all of that trouble was worthwhile in terms of building the timber one I reckon it is, yeah. Well, it would have been a lot cheaper too. A kayak's probably a couple of thousand dollars or something. But there, whereas this is a lot more than that in expense, plus hundreds of hours of, of time. I think it's totally worth it. It's just a much... You just don't want to make... This is such a beautiful place and so many people come here and look at it. And I uh, thought some big bright... They always seem to be bright colours. I don't know why. The plastic ones. That would um, detract from other people's experience potentially. And so just having these timber kikes that really bend in, blend in with the place. And I think just the history of it, the history of the King Billy in this area, is uh, it really adds something to it. And the boat shed that's on the shore of the lake here, it's got to be one of the most famous scenes, photographed scenes in Tasmania. Does it actually ever house any boats? It doesn't anymore. It did originally. So the first government-appointed ranger in the area uh, built that shed and he had um there were hue and pine boats in there for a for a while i think for about 20 years maybe in uh could be wrong here something like the 70s something like that i'm not sure when they were i never saw them but yeah there did used to be boats there but there's not anymore so it's actually made of king billy pine as well the little shed and you're right it's the most famous scene the shed there with the beach and dove lake and cradle mountain behind it and as far as the timber boat building goes you've obviously completed this one so far and i think you've got another one on the go yeah, I have another one on the go soon. So I've got a shed at home where I'm building them. And so the plan is to have four doubles and then also a single. We've currently got a double plus a single for a guide. And then we've got another fiberglass kayak up here. So if we get a group of four who want to go, we can take them out. But otherwise, we're just taking people out in two people out at a time in our King Billy kayak as, um, until we, you know, we're going to introduce the new boats into the fleet. So there'll be, there'll be a new one soon and then another. And yeah, so I've got a bit of work ahead of me to. I don't know, maybe another thousand hours will do it or something like that, I suppose, to get the the fleet completed. That was Sarah Abbott catching up with tour operator Anthony O'Hearn, who is tiny piece by tiny piece building a new fleet of timber kayaks for paddling on Dove Lake and those kayaks sound absolutely amazing. A few more rainfall texts here, 556 millimetres at Bungeet in Victoria, slightly above our 136 year average. Thanks for your text there. And John from Cardella near Corumbara says 1,230 millimetres for 2023, around the average from our area, green grass everywhere, and Happy New Year. Thank you for that text there. Rainfall at Addington near Ballarat, December was 120 millimetres, January to December a total of 717 mils compared to 2022, which was 
1,149 mils. The highest December recording at this location was 139 millimetres in 1993. Thanks for that detail there, Graham. And that is all the time we have on the Country Hour today. Great to have had your company. For those of you in Tassie, you'll have Fiona Breen in the Country Hour chair tomorrow. In Victoria, I'm Fiona Broom, and I'll be back with you tomorrow. Both shows will be a half hour during the cricket lunch break, so we should be with you around 12.30 or so tomorrow, but that will depend, of course, on how play goes um, and the rain. I guess that's going to be a big factor tomorrow. Thanks for all your texts. Great to have heard from you today. I'll be with you tomorrow. Catch ya.